Galatians 3, 23 through 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The word of the Lord. So we're continuing through uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. And each week we've been seeing how this letter is all about one big question. And the question is, what is the gospel? The whole letter is all about that one question. And each week, if you've been with us, you've seen that not only are we seeing the answer to the question, what is the gospel? We've been seeing how the gospel actually shapes and affects and changes and transforms every area of our life and every area of society. Now, this week, this passage that we just read is actually the center of the letter. And I don't just mean the middle of the letter, which it is that. It's, it's the center, it's the heartbeat of everything Paul is trying to tell us in this letter. And you see that very clearly in verse 26. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That may be the most revolutionary statement in the history of humanity, and here's why. Uh, a lot of times when we translate the Bible, we, it's appropriate to use gender-inclusive language. So for instance, the Greek word for human being is a word anthropos. We get our, our word anthropology from that word. It just means human being. Very often, people will translate that word man to indicate you know, the human system of civilization, but it's actually far more accurate and appropriate to translate that word human being or humanity. Uh, we use, it's appropriate to use gender-inclusive language when we translate that word. Now, when we read this verse, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, it would be very natural for us in our culture to want to make this gender-inclusive language also. In other words, our inclination would be to translate it like this. You are all children of God. We think, that's so much more inclusive, isn't it? And after all, isn't that what Paul is really saying here, that we're all children of God? Friends, not only would that be an inaccurate translation, because the word that Paul uses here, there was a, a, a word for children that Paul could have used. It's a very common word in the Bible. If Paul wanted to say children, he could have said that. But he uses the Greek word for sons. It's a very specific word. And here's what's so stunning about this. If we changed the language here from sons to children, not only would that be an inaccurate translation, it would actually weaken the revolutionary nature of what Paul is actually telling us here. One of the biggest values in our culture right now is this value that we have of inclusion and diversity. Is that not so? We, we put a tremendous value on inclusion and diversity in our culture, but 2,000 years ago, the gospel was talking about inclusion. 
It's easy to think that changing the language from sons to children would actually make it more inclusive. It would make it less. It would actually weaken the the revolutionary nature of what Paul is saying. It wouldn't be nearly as revolutionary to say children as it would be to say sons. What does it mean for Paul to say that when you're a Christian, you are now a son of God? We have to wrestle with that language. And by the way, you know, women aren't the only ones who have to wrestle with gender-specific language in the Bible because the Bible tells all of us, including men, that the church is the bride of Christ. That's specific, gender-specific language. It's telling us something specific, and we have to wrestle with that. So what does it mean for Paul to say that we are sons of God? If you're a Christian, you're a son of God. This concept of sonship is the very center of the gospel. It's the center of the letter. It's the center of the gospel. In fact, it's so important that we're actually going to take two weeks to look at this concept of sonship. It's that important. So this week, we're going to look at the objective nature of sonship. Next week, we're going to look at the subjective experience of sonship. That's how important it really is. So this week, let's look at this concept of sonship under three headings, all right? We're going to see what it is, what it means, and how it comes, all right? What it is, what it means, and how it comes. First of all, what is it? What is sonship? In verse 26, Paul says, if you have faith in Christ, you are a son of God. So what does that mean? In the ancient world, to be a son didn't just mean being the male offspring or the the genetic offspring of a parent. That's not what it meant. The real significance of being a son is that you were the heir. You were the one who inherits the property. That's the significance of the word. So for instance, in the ancient world, if there was a wealthy person who didn't have any children, uh, he didn't have anyone to inherit his property. So oftentimes what they would do in the ancient world is that wealthy person would adopt a son so that he would have somebody to inherit his property. And the really amazing thing about that is that at the very moment those adoption papers were signed, in in that very moment, instantly, that adopted son was the legal heir to everything that wealthy person owned. It was an instant change of status. They were the heir, and now everything that belonged to the father belonged to them legally. And friends, that is the heart of what Paul is saying here. To be a son is to be an heir. And you see that very explicitly, by the way, in verse 29. Notice Paul says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. To be an heir doesn't refer so much to the condition, I mean, to be a son doesn't refer so much to the condition of being someone's genetic offspring. It refers to the legal status of being someone's heir. Now, this is a way of illustrating this whole idea of justification. We've been talking about that a lot over the last several weeks, justification. It's a a theological word, a concept that Paul introduced way back in chapter 2, and and it comes up almost every single week. Paul keeps talking about justification, justification, justification. What is that? What does it mean to be justified? In chapters 3 and 4, and we're at the very end of chapter 3, about to head into chapter 4, throughout these two chapters, Paul gives us a series of arguments and illustrations to help us understand this concept of justification. And one of the main things that all of these arguments and illustrations are intended to communicate is that justification is a status change. 
It is a legal change of status. First and foremost, a legal status that we have before God. And this image of sonship is one of the most powerful images that we could possibly have for what it means to be justified, and for two reasons in particular. And the first is this. Sonship gets across this idea of justification that we have a new change of status. We've been placed in a new relationship now. In other words, when you're adopted as a son, that means that you get to enjoy the legal benefits of something to which you have no natural right. It's a change of status. We're placed in a new relationship with God, not because of anything we are in and of ourselves, but because of something that has been done for us by someone else. So first, not only is it a change of status, secondly, it's also a promise of inheritance. It's a promise of inheritance, a promise of blessing and riches and honor and glory and and plenitude that is poured into your life by virtue of this new relationship. You know, when we talk about justification, I like to think of justification as if you turn an umbrella upside down, that creates like, you can put a lot of things in that umbrella. Justification is an upside down umbrella. You can put a lot of things in there. It it holds a lot of concepts. So for instance, it's easy for us to think of justification when we think of Christianity, you know, Jesus died to save us from our sins. That's true. It's easy to think of justification in terms of forgiveness. Forgiveness is essentially a negative. It's the removal of guilt and punishment. Justification and therefore sonship is actually a positive So it's the promise of honor and glory. Justification holds much more than simply forgiveness. Forgiveness says you're free to go. (laughs) Sonship says you are welcome to enter in. It's a very different thing. You could think of it like this. Imagine you're in jail for some crime that you committed, um, but someone came along and they paid your debt and now you're free. Your debt has been canceled. Your guilt has been Um, canceled, and now you're free to go, and you walk out onto the street, you're a free person. But just because your debt has been forgiven, and just because you've been set free, doesn't mean that your life necessarily is all that much better. You may have no shoes on your feet, you may have rags on your back, you may be dirty and stinky and smelly with nowhere to go and, and no place to call a home. You've been forgiven, but if you tried to walk across the street from the jail to, say, the Ritz Carlton restaurant, and you walk in there with your dirty clothes and your smelly, stinky feet, the maitre d' would look at you and say, get out of here. You can't come in here. You're, you're not dressed right. You're, not, you're not, basically nothing more than a beggar on the street. You've been forgiven. Your debt has been canceled, but you still have not been welcomed in. Becoming a son of God means becoming an heir. It means you inherit the property. You don't just get out of jail. You are invited to the table of God and you are given a seat of honor at the grand eternal divine banquet. That's what this means. And that means that it is far, far more than just being forgiven. Sonship means you have a legal status that gives you full rights of inheritance and that you have now full rights to everything that belongs to the rightful heir. Okay? So first of all, that's what sonship is. It's a new legal status that gives you full rights of inheritance. Secondly, what does it mean? What does this actually mean, practically speaking? It's hard for us to understand in our culture just how revolutionary this is. But in the ancient world, sonship was a status that was reserved only for men. A woman couldn't 
be uh, admitted to something like this. It would have been scandalous to think that a woman could ever become an heir. Absolutely scandalous. But the gospel comes, the gospel completely reverses all of that. The gospel comes and it undermines all the things and all the ways that this world is ordered and it says that's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. For instance, if you were with us last fall, we were going through the book of Genesis And one of the things you see in the book of Genesis is this thing called the law of primogeniture. Now, that's a big word, but it simply means this. The law of primogeniture said that the firstborn son gets to inherit the property. When when a patriarch passes away, the property doesn't get divided among all the children. No, no, it goes to the firstborn son. That's the law of primogeniture. But when you read the book of Genesis, you see God constantly undermining the law of primogeniture. So that instead of the firstborn son, no, no, it's the second or the thirdborn son who gets the inheritance. Instead of the, the talented or the powerful or the strong people, God is choosing the weak and the rejected people in Genesis. Instead of the beautiful and the attractive people, God is choosing the plain and the ordinary people. God is constantly undermining the normal ways that our world would, would order status and significance in this world. Because we have a paradigm And the paradigm is this. The paradigm says God's love comes to those who are worthy. The paradigm says God's love comes to those who are virtuous. And by the way, that is not just a religious paradigm. Our secular society is basically a meritocracy. And and it operates essentially according to the same paradigm. Secular society essentially says, well, you may not believe in God, but every human being is looking for love and status, and honor, and significance, and approval, and acceptance. And if there is no God, then the only way you can get those things is through your performance by being a virtuous person, by being a talented or successful person, by being a a beautiful or a desirable person. It's all based on your performance. But here comes the gospel, and it shows us something completely different. And that's why this passage is so revolutionary, because Paul is saying that None of the ways we normally find status and significance in this world matter before God. None of those things matter. And we see that, by the way, very clearly in verse 28. Famous verse, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. Now let me show you just how radical this really is. In that culture, there was a prayer that uh, Greek men would say sometimes. And the prayer essentially said, God, I thank you that I was born a human being and not a creature. Thank you that I was born a free person and not a slave. And thank you, God, that I was born a man and not a woman. Jewish men had their own version of that prayer, very famous prayer. It said, I thank you, Lord, that I was not born a Gentile, that is a non-Jew, a slave or a woman. Very famous prayer. What are those prayers saying? Those prayers are an acknowledgement of the main ways that we find status in this world. What's the difference between a Jew and a Greek? That is a national or a racial or an ethnic distinction. It's a line of distinction or a racial line of distinction. The difference between a slave and a free person is an economic or a class distinction. The difference between a man and a woman obviously is a gender distinction. And we like to think, you know, we are so much more progressive and enlightened in our modern society, and we would never make distinctions on the basis of ethnicity or class or gender, and yet we do it all the time. 
And let's be really clear about something, by the way. Paul is not saying that those distinctions no longer exist. You look around the world and you see, of course they do. He's not saying those distinctions no longer exist. He's saying they no longer matter before God. All of the old distinctions fade away. You see, the Bible was doing inclusion way before it was culturally fashionable. You know, this is one of the most explosively powerful things that the church has to offer the world. You know, on the, on the first day of the church's existence, you can read about this in Acts chapter 2. The first day the church existed, there was about 120 people in the church. 120, that's it. Some movement. But if you look at the history of the world, within a few hundred years, the church, Christianity, had radically transformed the entire ancient world. Not just thousands, but hundreds of thousands of people flocked to Christianity. Why? What we're seeing here is one of the big reasons that happened. Because different ethnicities and nationalities and and racial um, uh, groups of people, they could come to the church and they could find a place where they could have status before God instead of their racial identity. Slaves and poor people could come to the church and they could find a place where they had status before God in spite of their class or economic identity. You know, women flocked to the church because the church was about the only place in ancient society where a woman could come and have equal status with everybody else in the room in spite of her gender identity. Their gender didn't matter. I mean, think about what this would look like in St. Louis. What would it look like in this city when we talk about lines of distinction? I mean, we are literally a block south of one of the biggest lines of distinction in this whole city. But what if Delmar Boulevard were just another street? No more line of distinction. What if even just a few blocks, for just a few blocks, it would be true to say that there is neither north or south of Delmar? What if that were true? What if all those old distinctions were to fade away? You know, that street right here is at least as much a class divide as it is a racial divide. There are all kinds of lines of distinction that we have right in this city, right here. But God's vision for his church is a place where those distinctions may still exist, but they no longer matter. They no longer matter. God's vision for his church is a multi-ethnic, multi-class, multicultural, multinational community in which all the old distinctions completely fade away and everyone has equal status before God. In fact, this is actually one of the main reasons that we started this church a little over a year ago because a huge part of our vision is that this church would be a community where people, all kinds of people who normally would have nothing to do with one another, would be able to come and find a place where they could find not just unity with God, but because they have found unity and reconciliation with God, they could now find unity and reconciliation with people they're radically different from. Friends, the church, the gospel is the only context and the only place in which something like this can actually happen. Now, obviously, if you look around the room, you know, we have a long ways to go on that. And I almost feel a little reluctant talking about it because I don't feel like in many ways we've earned the right. We're not there yet. But we won't get there unless we talk about it. We won't get there unless we're intentional about it. We won't get there unless we understand and embrace just how revolutionary the gospel really is when it tells us that those distinctions may exist, but they no longer matter. They no longer matter. Now, in order to do that, we have to see one more thing. We've seen 
what sonship is. And we've just seen what it means, at least a little bit about what it means for us at a practical level. We need to see one more thing here, how it comes. Because here's the problem. Here's the challenge. You know, we live in a culture that puts tremendous value on things like inclusion and diversity. Those things are celebrated in our culture and yet they are impossible to attain. Why? Why would that be so difficult to attain? Because in tearing down some distinctions, we simply erect others. For instance, in our culture, we put a tremendous amount of value on things like freedom to live however you want or the, the full dignity of every human being or uh, tolerance for all people. But because we still need to find our status in something, we still need to find our status in something, we end up being, if we're the kind of people who practice things like freedom, dignity, and tolerance, then we end up feeling superior and better than people who don't practice those things. Why is that? It's because the human heart, the default nature of the human heart is to find our status in some virtue. We got to find status and significance somewhere, and the default nature of the human heart is to find it in some virtue. We want to be able to look at something in ourselves, something about ourselves, some talent or skill or virtue, some capacity, some accomplishment, something in and about ourselves that we can point to and we say, this is how I know I'm worthy of love and belonging. This is how I know that I have worth. This is how I know that I matter. And whatever that thing is, it's going to become an exclusion principle in our lives and in this world. In other words, whenever we find our status and significance in some virtue that we possess, part of the way that we get and keep that status is not just by having the virtue, but by comparing ourselves to people who don't have that virtue because the comparison is inevitable. So for instance, religious people do this all the time. You know, if you find your status and significance in this world in the virtue of obeying certain rules and practicing certain principles and dressing a certain way and you know, observing certain um, you know, traditions and things like that, if that's the way you find status and significance in the world, then it's natural for you to feel better than people who don't observe the same rules, traditions, or principles. And it's not just religious people who do this. As we mentioned, secular culture essentially operates according to the same paradigm. So if you're a professional person, it's so easy to, to feel better than a service worker, you know, a gardener or somebody you go to a restaurant, the person who comes to serve you. Or if you're talented and successful, it's easy to feel better than people who aren't as talented or successful as you are. Or if you're, um, you know, young and beautiful, it's easy to feel better than people who are older than you or maybe not as good-looking as you are. Or if you're socially conscious, it's easier to feel better than people who are, you know, they're a little bit bigoted over there. We do this with all kinds of things. We do this with, you know, what we eat, how we dress, how we vote, what we believe in, whether you believe in you know, recycling or climate change, whatever it is, the list is endless. We take some virtue and we attach moral significance to it and then that virtue becomes an exclusion principle in our lives. So we have these things in our lives, these virtues, and we attach, we, we, we get our status and our significance from these things and we say, this is the way I know that I have worth and value in this world. And whenever we do that, that thing, whatever it is, becomes a way not only of feeling better than other people, but of excluding them. 
But the gospel undermines all of that because it gives us a new basis for the status and the significance that we want in this world. You are an heir. You are a son. You have been given a status that doesn't belong to you by right, but has been given to you by God, simply on the virtue, on the basis of his grace and his mercy. Because the gospel undermines all the old lines of distinctions by giving us a completely different way of finding the status that we need. How does that happen? You notice in this passage, there's a phrase that comes up several times. Uh, Very interesting the way Paul talks about this. You see it in verse 23. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. You see it again in verse 25. He says, now that faith has come. Very interesting. He's talking a lot about faith, but he's saying faith is coming. Faith is coming. The coming faith. The coming faith. Something is coming. Keeps talking about that. But then notice in verse 24, very interesting. He says, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Until Christ came. In other words, Paul is saying for faith to come means for Christ to come. What does that mean? Let me put it this way. It's natural for us to think of having faith as yet another virtue. It's just another virtue. So we may say, look, I'm not going to point to my looks or my talent or my achievements or my accomplishments or my riches or my home or my clothes or my beauty. Any, I'm not going to point to those things anymore and say, that's how I know I have status and significance in this world. No, no, I've turned over a new leaf. Now I'm going to point to my faith. And I'm going to say, that's how I know that I have worth and value in this world. I believe in Jesus. I am a person of faith. We turn faith into another virtue and we say, this is how I know I'm acceptable. And a lot of times what that ends up being is just us, what it ends up being is us trying to be more sincere. That is sincerity masking as faith. So what happens is this, we think if only I were more devoted to God, I need to turn over a new leaf. If only I were really living the life I should live, really living a life of faith, so that if we're doing well, religiously speaking, if our religious performance is up to snuff, then we feel good about ourselves. But if we're not doing well in our religious performance, then we beat ourselves up. We feel bad about ourselves. And we start thinking, well, I I need to start going to church more. I need to turn over a new leaf. I need to rededicate my life to God. I need to resurrender my life to God. I need to walk the aisle, maybe get baptized again because the last time didn't take. What are we doing when we do that? We're not, that is not faith in God. That is faith in ourselves. That is faith in our religious performance. But the gospel says faith is not faith in ourselves. It's faith in God. It's not faith in our performance. It's faith in God's provision. It's not faith in something we've done. It's faith in something God has done for us. Faith is not, you know, religious performance. It is not faith in the sincerity of our repentance, in the sincerity of our surrender to God. It's, it's, that's faith in the strength of faith, but that is not real faith. Faith is not faith in the strength of our faith. Faith, as Tim Keller says, is faith in the object of our faith, and that's Jesus doesn't matter how strong your faith is. What matters is the object of your faith. It's Jesus. We don't turn faith into another virtue. Faith is not a virtue. It's not something that we can point to and say, I have faith, I have standing therefore before God. No, Jesus is our standing before God. 
Because when Paul says, for faith to come means that Christ has come, what is he saying there? He says, for faith to come means that Christ has come. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that faith is not just another virtue. It's not trusting in our performance. It's trusting in God's provision. Basically, it's an acknowledgement that before God, we're, we're really nothing more than beggars. We're nothing more than beggars. It's It's an acknowledgement that our only hope in this world, our only hope of being welcomed into the presence of God is not on the basis of our performance and our virtue, but on the basis of someone else's performance and someone else's virtue. And that someone else is Jesus Christ. Because who is Jesus? He's the heir. He's the true and rightful and only heir of God because he's the only true and rightful son of God. And don't get confused here. Yes, it's true that every single human being has worth, value, and dignity because we are all created in the image of God. That is true. We are, every human being is created in the image of God and, and worthy of dignity. But we have marred and defaced the image of God in ourselves through our sin, through our rebellion, our efforts to define and justify ourselves, not on the basis of God's grace and mercy, but on the basis of our own performance, on the basis of our own virtue. We have shattered the image of God in our lives, and that's reduced us basically to being beggars before God. So that in and of ourselves, all of our best efforts, all of our moral performance, all of our ethical grandstanding, all of our so-called virtue, all of that is, as the prophet Isaiah said, nothing more than filthy rags. And yet we look at that and we say, God, accept me on that basis. What we need is for someone or something to give us a virtue and a righteousness and a beauty that we don't have in and of ourselves. Where are we going to get it? I saw um, a news story a few weeks ago about a homeless man, a 70-year-old homeless man in Dallas. His name's Pops. And the cameras were following him around the streets of downtown Dallas as he was, um, it was a social experiment. And it was, uh, you know, he was going around and and people would be walking down the street and he was asking them for the uh, directions to the library. And Basically, and he had like one of those GoPro cameras on his chest, so you could see his perspective and see how people were responding to him. And you could see that basically every single person was just ignoring him, walking by, barely even paying attention to him, um, certainly not giving him directions to the library. He was completely shunned, completely ignored, completely shut out. Because here he is, you know, he's got dirty clothes, he needs a haircut, he's unkempt, he probably smells, he's obviously a homeless person, and everybody on the street, nobody wanted to have anything to do with this guy. But then what they do is they they take him to a salon, and they, you know, they're manicuring his nails, and they're exfoliating his skin, and they, they shave his beard, and they give him a haircut, and, and they clean him up. And then, on top of that, they, they, they put him in a beautiful new suit. And I mean, not just any suit. This is like a really deep, rich, vibrant blue suit. And they put him in this suit. I mean, he looks good. <laughs> and then they put him back out on the street. And he asks the same question 
hey, how do I get to the Dallas Public Library? And all of a sudden, people are laughing and joking and conversing with him. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, joking around on the corner and wanting to talk to him. And people, when he asks them for directions, they don't just point the way. They say, oh, let me take out a piece of paper and write it down for you. I mean, they treat him completely differently. All of a sudden, he's given a royal welcome. You take off his rags of rejection, you put him in a new suit, and all of a sudden, instead of being rejected and despised, he's given a royal welcome because he got a new suit. Now, at the human level, at the human level, this story is encouraging on one level because, you know, obviously did a lot for this man's self-esteem, and that's encouraging, but it's also tragic because it's a social experiment, and it shows us just how much we exclude and ignore one another on the basis of appearances and on the basis of all those lines of distinction, economic and class distinctions, that we ignore one another. In spite of the fact that every human being is created in the image of God and has innate worth, value, and dignity. So at a human level, yeah, this story is saying one thing, but at a cosmic level, friends, don't you see this is a perfect beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus was, he was rejected so that we could be welcomed and sit on a throne. Jesus dressed himself in our rags so that he could robe us, clothe us in his robe of righteousness. Jesus was shunned, he was cast out, he was thrown into the gutter so that we could be welcomed to the table of God, so that we could be given the royal welcome that only he deserves. Friends, oh my goodness, faith in Jesus is the only way, the only way to this sonship that Paul is showing us here, to this sonship that God promises us here. Do you want a status and a standing that can never be taken away from you, that you can never lose, no matter how much you fail or how hard you fall? Do you want that? Look to Jesus. He takes your rags of rejection and he robes you in his righteousness and gives you a seat of honor at the table of God. That no matter who you are or what you've done or what's happened to you or what the world may say about you, you can find in Jesus, you can find the honor and the welcome and the glory that your heart yearns for. And don't you see that if you want to know how you can find a way to to transcend and and overcome all of these lines of distinction that we've erected for ourselves, not just in St. Louis, but in the whole history of humanity, how are we going to transcend that? How are we going to get over that? Only when you become an heir in the kingdom of God, through Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone, that puts you in a new standing with God, and therefore that puts you in a new standing with everybody else. And let me give you one very simple way that we can begin practicing that right now, right after the service. It's very easy. I know we all do it. Service is over. We want to start talking to our friends because if you've been coming here for a while, you've probably made some friends here, and it's natural for us to want to talk to our friends. One way we can start putting this into practice right now is instead of talking to your friend, just give them a nod, say, I'll catch up with you later, but go find somebody this morning I know it's a little awkward, it's a little artificial, but remember, this kind of thing takes intentionality. If it doesn't begin here in the church, how is it going to happen in the world? If you can't do it here in the church, how are you going to cross Del Mar to do it? Go find somebody this morning that you've never met before, maybe, maybe even preferably somebody who's just a little bit different from you, that in the world's eyes, they, they, the world would never see you too 
socializing together. Go, just go greet that person. It doesn't have to be fancy or extended. Just go stick out your hand and say, hi, my name is Bobby or Susie. What's your name? If we can't start doing it here, how are we going to do it out in the world? How are we going to do it in the world? It starts right here, church. It starts right here. Now, you no longer get your status or your standing in this world from what you do or who you are, from any virtue that's in and of yourself. You get it from Jesus. And when you no longer are getting your status and your standing in this world or before God from what you do or any virtue in your life, when that happens to you, all of a sudden you are now able to treat people who in the world's eyes would be of a completely different status or standing you are now able to treat those people completely differently. But in the gospel, the basis of how we treat one another has completely been revolutionized. It's a completely different basis. The distinctions may still exist, but they no longer matter. You can look at others differently and treat them differently because God now looks at you differently. Can I hear the church say amen? amen. Let's pray.